Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to another edition of Around the Table. We continue our series on global revolutionaries, and our series started with the life of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, one of the greatest revolutionaries of the world. In the last episode, we touched upon the intense persecution faced by the Holy Prophet, his family, his friends, and a small band of followers. Um, the persecution intensified. He was boycotted uh, for a, a period of up to three years. He lost very close friends and family. His uncle, Abu Talib, passed away, as did his devoted wife, Hazrat Khadija. Nevertheless, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, continued with his mission of spreading the oneness of God to all those that listened. And at the uh, conclusion of the last episode, we talked about his uh, journey to Taif, uh, which uh, is a, was a small uh, town about 40 miles to the south of uh, Mecca, where he resided at the time. He went there in order to, to see whether he could spread his message to those people, to see whether they would be uh, more forthcoming than the, the residents of Mecca. And sadly, he was uh, meted with uh, intense persecution there. In fact, he was not only verbally abused, but physically abused. Uh, rocks were thrown at him, uh, and he was bloodied uh, all over. Um, it is narrated in Hadith that, uh, saying of the Holy Prophet, that someone asked him, in fact, his uh, beloved wife at the time, Hazrat Aisha, asked him whether there was any day more uh, painful to him than the Battle of Ord, um, which we'll come on to later. But but he replied that, yes, it was the day that uh, he uh, went to, to Taif and he was rejected by the people of Taif, uh, which was mm, bitterly painful for him. And this happened uh, in the year 10, uh, around about the year year 10 of his, of his call, which equates to 620 of the Christian era. Um, Sir William Muir, who wrote a biography, famous biography of the Holy Prophet, actually writes about the journey to Taif. And, and I wanted to just quote a little um, passage from Sir William Muir, which I think touches upon, upon that episode quite, quite nicely. Uh, and I quote, There is something lofty and heroic in this journey of Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, to Taif a solitary man despised and rejected by his own people, going boldly forth in the name of God like Jonah to Nineveh, and summoning an idolatrous city to repent and support his mission. It sheds a strong light on the intensity of his belief in the divine origin of his calling. And, and this just shows the immense uh, commitment that the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had and his conviction in the true message and the oneness of God, that he, he went to all pains to spread this message to whoever he could uh, talk to. Um, let's continue the journey from there, Safir. So the historic uh, journey to Daif and, and uh, the painful episode that we recalled, what happens subsequently in, in, in the following few months and years. So one important incident was the spread of Islam in the 
Dorse tribe. So just in summary, the, the, the Prophet's mission is about 10 years old. Persecution has intensified. Um, although he is gaining believers, some, some strong believers and some and many weak. Um, so he continued on his personal endeavor to uh, convey the message of Islam to the people he met. And the incident I'm about to recount also speaks to the culture that's prevalent within the Arabs of the time, because the culture of tribalism is important here. And uh, on occasion, the Prophet of Islam might uh, meet and interact and preach to uh, a senior member of a tribe and thereby convert the entire tribe because the tribal culture indicated if a significant or influential person uh, accepted a new message, he could convey that to his entri- entire people. So one example of this was um, the, the, the Dorse tribe. And and so a, a man called Tufail bin Umar, who was a revered chieftain of the tribe, and he also happened to be a poet, he came to Mecca to attend a festival, and he was approached by the Quraysh, the, 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 the primary opponents of the Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him. And they, they, they preempted him, they, want, they warned him, and they said to him as he came to Mecca, you have come to us at a time where, where a man has spurred grave disorder and rift. His beliefs disunite father and son, brother from brother, and husband from wife, and we are fearful that you might become influenced by his spellbinding words. As such, we forewarn you, do not be lured into his thoughts. So you can remember in, in an earlier episode, we touched upon how the Goresh, the, the, the powers of, of Mecca, they sought to propagandize who the Prophet of Islam was, and they all came to the conclusion that he was a sorcerer. That would probably be the best way to position him. So they warned him on that same basis. So they're continuing with that propaganda. So he recounted, um, Tufail bin Umar recounted that he was warned so forcefully that he believed them and became greatly fearful, so much so that he plugged his own ears in case he would accidentally uh, become enchanted by these words. So uh, he, he continued on, on his way, to, on his visit to Mecca. He visited and he happened to visit and see the Holy Prophet of Islam uh, uh, offering his prayers. And uh, he, he was somehow enchanted by seeing this and he, he, he thought that this was an admirable sight. And he also said that he could faintly hear it, despite his ears being plugged. Um, so he then he reverted to his own confidence, his own belief in his own abilities. And he said, um, what harm is there that I can, uh, that I, if I listen to this man, I can distinguish between good and evil? If it is good, I'll choose to believe in it. If it's evil, I'll, I'll reject it. So he went on to listen, began to hear the recitation of the Holy Quran by the Prophet of Islam. And when he completed his prayers and started Prophet of Islam, that is, completed his prayers and moved towards his home. He he um, approached the Prophet of Islam and told him to tell him of the religion of Islam. And the Prophet of Islam immediately recited the word of God unto, unto him, the message of unity, and the result of which I became a Muslim instantly, on the spot. And uh, he said... Uh, he then went on to tell the Prophet of Islam that I dis- possess a distinct position, a status within my tribe, and people pay heed to me. So pray that through me, Allah guides them onto Islam. Um, the Holy Prophet approved of this and, and prayed on his behalf. When he returned home, first he preached to his father and then to his wife, and they became Muslim. But then he turned towards the rest of his tribe, and they, he also invited them to Islam. But they rejected him, and they didn't accept him. They grew in their hatred and opposition, so he began to experience something mm-hmm. of what the Prophet of Islam had been experiencing. And he returned to the Holy Prophet, and uh, he presented himself to him, and, they, and he tells him of the rejection and the opposition that he, he faces. And he, the Holy Prophet of Islam admonishes him to return to his people to continue to preach with love and with compassion. This so, is an interesting point, because um, Tufal came back to the Holy Prophet 
telling him that you know the 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 people had rejected him and we must remember that he was a, a very high status in the tribe and as you've rightly said mm. normally what happens is that the tribe leaders if they um give a certain position or 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 a message then traditionally the tribe accept that however he was rejected and not only rejected persecution and opposition started so he was expecting the holy prophet to kind of almost um um send kind of damnation on on the tribe but we see the compassion and mercy uh, personified in the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him where he says as as you've said return to your people and continue preaching with love and compassion indeed indeed and i think that is the important message to take so he he goes on to do to take that away but it it's a, it's one thing hearing that message is another thing to continue to do that in a steadfast and consistent way so he he goes on and returns to his tribe to continue to preach the message of islam and he does so but he doesn't get the immediate results just like the prophet of islam has waited 10 years after his mission he's only getting small trickles of results very similar uh, to fail has exactly the same experience he said he had he it was after uh, the migration of the muslims from mecca and the battles of badr uhud and the confederates it's only then after then that the his tribe accepted islam so he retained his position of influence but it took a long time for them to um, finally uh, accept that message so i think it's an important story in that um it it tells that there were some individuals of strong character and influence but also able to convey that message having met with the holy prophet of islam with love and compassion but also consistency and steadfastness mm. so mecca has this privilege of being the center of trade in the region so that attracts very interesting characters so all you know you say the tufail from those all the way from yemen visited and there were other visitors as well and every hajj and at, at the at the fair of akaz there will be these tribal leaders because not everybody could afford to travel so it's only the more affluent people who would travel who would be either with a trade caravan or who would be paying homage to their idols in um, uh, in the kaaba and uh, so the holy prophet uh, was very aware of that that dynamic and he Uh, was uh, uh, always keen to influence or or to preach to these visitors so in addition to the fell there are other famous visitors one is uh, uh, suad bin samit and th- th- these are people from medina yesterday at that time and we see more and more that people from medina around this time of of the of the holy prophet's ministry are coming uh to to Mecca more frequently because there is trouble brewing in mm-hmm. in Medina there there two main arab tribes are having uh, a major conflict and they are looking for um, um allies mm-hmm. in Mecca and the holy prophet uh, is uh, uh, has approached them and said well what, what, instead of waging war i have a better solution to use so when samet is one of them ayaz uh, bin maaz is another uh and uh, so that shows that you know the ground was fertile for that preaching as well allah taala was um uh, making um uh, you know making things happen so to facilitate 
people's um, uh, mind to turn towards an alternative, which was not war. Uh, and these people that you mentioned were tribal leaders at that time, yeah. people of influence coming. Um, from uh, from these two were from Os and Khazraj. Yeah. Um, and then at the same time, uh, as, as Safir was saying, that people, uh, the words mattered. I mean, they still mm-hmm. matter, but for Arabs, words, poetry, uh, speech mattered. They paid a, a lot of attention to what the learned people amongst their, their, their tribes were saying, even so much so that they will call people sorcerers just because mm-hmm. of the power of their poetry or their um, uh, their prose. And, you know, their people, like Tufel was warned not to listen to this sorcerer. And, and um, uh, there was another who came saying, it's called, it's not named Zamad, Azvi, uh, and he was also from Yemen, and um, uh, he he was also very uh, uh, famous for his uh, prowess with poetry and uh, 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 controlling crowds with his uh, power of speech. And he said that, well, you, you speak so highly of this person, I'll come and I will cast my spell on him, mm-hmm. let me go. And he goes to the Holy Prophet and... Uh, uh, he said, well, shall I start with you, like <laughs> like sorcerers will, you know. And the Holy Prophet said, well, let me start first. And, and he recited the oft-recited re- verses from the Quran, which are now recited at every Jummah uh, in the sermon, uh, the Friday sermons. Uh, and he recited the whole uh, verse. And uh, Zamad, on hearing that, um, asked him to repeat it and repeat it again. Uh, and he said that I have not heard such a comprehensive speech before, and he converted uh, and became a Muslim. Yeah, I mean that that is the that is the character of the uh, people and the Arabs who are fascinated by this new message as well, scared and fascinated. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing to it. There's no so these verses that were recited to Zamad and the, the the conversation the Holy Prophet had with the people from Aus and Khazraj were all about peace. That is God who's going to change you. It's not. Uh, but you, you listen to or read the Arab poets of the day, they were talking about themselves and how great warriors they were uh, and you know the, how deadly their swords were mm-hmm. and you know all that. And here's the Quran which is talking about you know conquering your own self, uh, mm-hmm. finding guidance uh, through God um, and uh, leaving everything to God alone. And so this is in contrast to what the other Arabs were saying. It was very uh, distinctive. Mm. And the Quran is is was proclaimed as one of the greatest miracles of the uh, the Holy Prophet mm-hmm. presented to the people at that time. We believe it to be the the um, word of God Almighty, and and it was the words we 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 recounted that it was the verses of the Holy Quran that that convinced Hazrat Umar uh, to yeah. convert, and and many of the early uh, converts were converted by the power of the verses of the Holy Quran. But it's quite interesting, isn't it, that we, we're in the 10th year, or past the 10th year, we have a trickle of individuals uh, who have been convinced and converted. But it's still a very small band of followers that the Holy Prophet has at that time, doesn't he? 10 years after the start of his yeah. call. Yeah, I mean, it's the quality which matters, mm. not the quantity, right? Mm. So the people... 
as I said, you know, these people mm. that we mentioned, and I've had uh, Abu Dhar Ghaffari, yeah. mm. may Allah be pleased with him, who was also from the outskirts of Medina, yeah. and he came in Kuwait. He was very influential, a yeah. very, um, um, I would say, yeah, wealthy mm-hmm. trader. Mm-hmm. I think his wealth was legendary even after he converted. Uh, and amongst the Muslims, he was considered to be one of the wealthiest people who ever lived at that time, and so much wealth he had. And he converted, and uh, then when he went, people in Mecca found out, they started beating him. <laughs> and somebody came and uh, told them, that, that, you know who the person you're beating? This is Abu Zer Ghaffari, you buy your dates from him. <laughs> so that is the the caliber of the people. So we say that, you know, of course they were poor people, they were slaves, they were children, women. But in amongst them, they were very influential and uh, well-known people as well. And to add to, add to that, although they were small in number, they were they they'd shown that they could stand up or at least be persistent through all the persecution that was being visited mm-hmm. upon them. You mentioned the boycott earlier. We've talked before about how brutal some of that um, persecution, torture, mm-hmm. was, and still they they were still around ten years into the mission. Um, so that I think is an important point to note. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that um, your point, you know, really powerful that it was the quality of the individuals and their steadfastness despite the persecution despite you know um the immense um, hatred that they were receiving um but they continued uh, supporting the holy prophet let's move on uh, then shall we um around that time we also read in uh, literature and the biographies of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, about these miraculous journeys. I know a lot's been written by the Orientalists about this, and and uh, even t- to this day, many um, atheist agnostics and, and others vehemently kind of almost uh, laugh at the incident of the Mirage uh, uh, and Isra. Uh, maybe you can share with our listeners just a little background about that and then we can talk a little more yeah, about sure. it. Yeah, sure. So in Muslims, uh, we, we know these terms miraj, which means ascension. Actually, it also means ladder, the ascension or the ascension to the heavens by the Prophet. And Isra, which means journey uh, and or the night journey. Uh, isra is specifically the night journey. And both of these terms, you know, in... in, in people's view, even common Muslims will say that they are the one and the same thing. Actually, these, this is basically one event where a journey took place uh, where the Holy Prophet went from Mecca to Jerusalem uh, on, a, on a steed called Burak. Uh, and then he ascended, which is a mirage, uh, to the heavens uh, accompanied by the angel Gabriel or Jibril. Uh, and the events of these two event, uh, journeys have been uh, recounted in various hadiths. However, one must look at the earliest possible points where these events were narrated. For example, Ibn Abbas uh, has narrated them separately. He has focused more on the, the events of Miraj, uh, whereas others have focused more on the event of Isra. And some have just conflated and just mentioned two of them together. Some even believe that the mirage or the ascension actually took place on multiple occasions uh, and all of them have been combined to give one narrative. Uh, Some others believe this is just one uh, event. Now, what was the event? Now, the Quran is very 
categorical in saying that nobody can physically ascend to heavens. Uh, Prophet, peace be upon him, when he was asked by the, the, the Meccans, why don't you go up and bring us a book? The answer was, I'm only a Bashar, I'm only a human. That is to mean that humans do not go up to heavens and uh, physically. So that is one clear evidence in the Quran that such events should not be taken in literal sense. Uh, it is the narrators and the later interpolations and misunderstandings which have given us this uh, account, uh, which is now very much um, part of the Muslim folklore. It has been, uh, you know, told in, in by the preachers as if it happened physically, and it has been counted as one of the or the only miracle that uh, some people can. Um, mentioned that, you know, just like Jesus could raise the dead, just like Moses could uh, do, you know, uh, split the the sea, the, uh, our prophet, peace be upon him, actually physically went up to heavens and back. Um, whereas it is not really, uh, should not be taken in literal sense because the significance of the event, and we go back to what Islam is about, is about the spiritual mm. uh, enlightenment and the prophet, peace be upon him, being the uh, pinnacle of, of, of that spiritual uh, uh, evolution and mirage uh, specifically in Isra as well, Isra has its own significance uh, uh, actually says that uh, first of all it proves that the Prophet, peace be upon him, was the seal of the Prophet that uh, in his person the, the message to mankind was completed uh, and it was actually told to him or um, he experienced that status even before his the revelation of Quran was complete, so in, still in Mecca, where he was being persecuted, going through all these hardships, and God gives him these two uh, strong and uh, uh, tremendous signs of his support, which actually foretell the events of the future, that what was the purpose of his ministry, of his prophecy, of his prophethood, was to complete the message of God to mankind. But not also that, but him and his people should lead the world from then onwards. Um, suffice it to say that the Holy Prophet experienced that spiritual journey where he actually uh, was close to God as you know a bow when it is fully stretched and two ends of it are close to each other. That is the metaphor used in the Quran. That's the mirage. And Isra, where he went to the... Um, distant mosque, uh, Masjid Al-Aqsa, which is now known, and the Prophet, peace be upon him, actually said that it is Jerusalem I went to. And when the non-believers said, well, we can't, don't believe that you went to Jerusalem back in one night, because that was that, and his wife, uh, Aisha, peace be upon him, was actually there. And she said, well, the, the Prophet, peace be upon him's body did not leave. It was that he had that spiritual experience. And the non-believers at that time asked them, okay, tell us so-and-so about Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem being on the trade route, some of them actually had gone there, and the Prophet, peace be upon him, actually was shown those places by God. At that the same time, and he identified or he narrated those back to those who questioned him, and they were surprised or dumbfounded by that answer. And in my view, or in our view, the significance of that journey is that he... He leads the prophets, all the previous prophets in prayers, mm. uh, signifying that he is the leader of all the prophets, that he is the purpose of this message that has been given to mankind 
from uh, Adam through to Jesus and to the, the Holy Prophet himself. Uh, and that, you know, all the all their nations, all their tribes, all their uh, ummas are now going to follow the Holy Prophet in order to find guidance and the way to God. And the significance of Miraj um, is manifold. It is a very hi highly refined experience, spiritual experience that no other prophet in the past had. In the Quran, we have the, ex the spiritual experiences of uh, Moses, Musa, -Islam, as in he goes on a journey, similarly, uh, and it is narrated in Surah Al-Kahf. Uh, and that, that journey explains that Moses or Musa -Islam, is asking many questions um, and a person uh, who is now identified in uh, literature as Khidr but in the interpretation that the second caliph of the, of the Muslim community it was uh, that person who the Moses saw in his dream who was leading him or showing him the way was uh, the holy prophet Muhammad peace be upon him uh, and so the, the you comparison to the experience of Moses, which was the uh, Isra or or the journey of Moses, we see that Miraj is a, uh, has so many other details, um, uh, and that that narrated in the books about um, heaven and hell, the nature of uh, uh, you know spiritual um, uh, levels that a person can uh, attain, and the prayers. So the Muslims are enjoying these five daily prayers. Uh, and that came during that night, um, that uh, event of Miraj, that the Prophet, peace be upon him, was given 50 prayers, mm -hmm. obligatory prayers mm -hmm. daily. And they, they, then Moses uh, sends him back every time and says, no, you need to ask for a reduction because he said, in my experience, uh, you know, my, my people could not, uh, you know, follow the Sharia or the, or the um, ordained number of prayers. And... I fear that your people will not do that either. But in the end, it was five daily prayers that were uh, given to the Muslims. So yeah, I mean, th these are uh, significant events uh, during the last couple of years of uh, the Meccan life mm -hmm. of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. So, I mean, suffice it to say that as MD Muslim community, we believe it to be one of the most profound spiritual journeys that any human being has ever experienced. Uh, our non-MD Muslim brothers interpret it as a physical journey, um, but our interpretation is very much a, a spiritual journey that that took the Holy Prophet um, spiritually to, to such an uh, excellent level that no man has ever yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, reached that level spiritually, and we believe no man can uh, now uh, reach that level yeah. again. So if you the 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 verses in Surah Najm are very profound in in that they describe the not only what was happening but mm -hmm. also what was the state of the Holy Prophet's heart at that time mm -hmm. that he. Mm -hmm. Uh, because it was such a profound experience that the Quran actually reassures him. It is your heart does mm. not is not lying to you, is yeah. not uh, giving you false information, and that also shows that it is the heart which experienced that mm -hmm. um, uh, vision or that uh, we shouldn't call it a vision because it was an actual experience, right? I mean, it is more than a vision. Yeah, yeah and if uh, our listeners are interested, there is a a wealth of. Uh, 
um, literature just about the Mirage and the Isra, Isra and, and the Amdiya Muslim community and the Promised Messiah's interpretation of that spiritual journey. So uh, please do read up on, on this. Um, we've come to the end of this segment. There'll be a short break. Please do continue to listen to the Voice of Islam Radio and join us uh, after this short break. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. With so many attacks on Islam and the Holy Prophet wasallam, let's set the record straight. He was a man of peace. He went through 13 long years of persecution for his beliefs. He was mocked and ridiculed, but he didn't retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he went to Taif to spread the message of Islam, he was pelted with stones until he was bleeding. Yet he did not retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he migrated to Medina, he established the Charter of Medina, allowing the Jews, Christians and Muslims to live together in harmony with full religious freedom because he was a man of peace. And after all the oppression that he faced, when he returned to Mecca as a king, he had the right and the power to punish every single one of them. Yet he forgave them because he was a man of peace. The Holy Prophet said that, no white man is superior to a black man, no Arab to a non-Arab. Rather, everyone is equal. He freed slaves and taught to treat them as brothers. He did all of this because he was sent as the Rahmatul Lil Alameen, a mercy for mankind. Indeed, the Holy Prophet was a true man of peace. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Welcome back to Around the Table where we're discussing Holy Prophet Muhammad as the greatest revolutionary. Um, just before the break, Lutf was uh, sharing with us the uh, narration about the mirage and the Isra and the, the great spiritual miracle that we believe it to be. But, um, Safid, I know even to this day, a lot of, um, a lot of people um, make fun of that, don't they? Uh, that the... the the prophet rode on a on a winged horse and and kind of uh, defied the laws of relativity and and I think that's because uh, people are continuing to interpret it as a physical journey, where as Lutf in his in his explanation quite clearly outlined that it wasn't a physical journey but very much a spiritual experience. And we as Muslims, as Ahmadi Muslims, we continue to believe today that um, a Muslim can attain heights whereby. Uh, a spiritual experience can be felt by them and this is one example of that although this is the supreme example of that as you touched on earlier so um, we take that as fact we understand that as a rational uh, outcome to life if one dedicates oneself to the teachings of Islam on, on a fundamental basis um, one purifies oneself one can experience things that are on the same spectrum as that although not as um, not as elevated so you know, we don't interpret this as a physical journey that happened uh, over a short period of time. Very much not, but a very uh, a spiritual journey, and we take that as understood. And the other important point, if I could just continue on on the outcome of of those incidents, was that this was when the ordainment of the five daily prayers was established for the Muslims, which Lutf mentioned, and that I think is a very significant measure of the. The Holy Prophet of Islam's influence as a revolutionary. Ever since that day, billions of Muslims to this day have offered their prayers using the same actions, the same words, 
um, uh, in the same manner uh, that the Holy Prophet of Islam began to reveal to his followers. And uh, I think that's a very profound... Um, I, don't, I don't think there's anybody else who can claim that much kind of influence over their followers, uh, you know, a thousand, a thousand, fourteen hundred years since they passed away, effectively. Um, so I think that's a very profound measure of the Prophet's influence and legacy. Absolutely. I and mean, that's a really interesting point that we as Muslims and Muslims since the time of the Holy Prophet follow his exact actions that he performed whilst praying and say the exact words that he uttered for 1500 years ago which which is actually when you think about it such a i mean is what more evidence of influence can can you have yeah so this is this is what contributes to my understanding of the prophet of islam as the greatest revolutionary and the most influential person of uh, who's ever lived um, because there's not only is it the actions you know it's not a, a physical just a physical mm. th physical thing the, the words the emotions that one experiences mm. and the actual need that we have to mm. offer that prayer it's all fulfilled by those actions and there's a great deal of wisdom which you could mm. step into in and in how a Muslim presents themselves in prayer and the the, the positions that they mm -hmm. take up it's very linked to the actual terminology but it was all kind of established during that period of time up until that point Muslims uh, you know, were offering a form of salat. They would go away in pairs or on on their own, and they would secretly offer their prayers. Perhaps out in the dunes of the desert, they would they would gather. Um, but then after this, it became very much more established. There's a rigor, and that rigor is aligned to how the day passes from sun, you know before sunrise to sunset, and there's five uh, distinct periods of time in which one should remember. Uh, God through the form of the obligatory prayer or salat as it's referred to and that became a very fundamental and very important pillar of Islam and the salat the the obligatory prayer is is actually a mechanism to increase your spiritual or one's spirituality and one's connection with God Almighty so it was a it, it was a vehicle or a mechanism that that was gifted to the Holy Prophet who in turn gifted it to his followers to say, look, follow me in the way I am worshipping and you will also reap the rewards of spirituality through this um, form of prayer and worship. Yeah, I mean, you see, this is, the, this is a gift given during Miraj, the Ascension, and there's a famous hadith saying that Salat is the Miraj of a believer. Mm -hmm. So that kind of links us beautifully together. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Let's move on then, and uh, we know at that time that there were two great um, empires, Sophie. We have the Roman Empire on one side, we have the Persian Empire on the other side, and then the, the fledgling um, Islamic community is just at its um, initial stages, isn't it, with a handful, literally, of, of followers. Describe, to uh, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, the state of the world at that time, please. Yeah. So I think it's important at this point in time to just take stock of the mm -hmm. geopolitical situation. So the Arabs, they, they control through their tribes and their trade routes um, what is today Saudi Arabia. But north of them, there, there are other tribes and north of them are the two great empires you referred to, the Persians, Sassanids, and the Eastern Romans, or the Byzantines, as they were called. And those were two great powers. They were probably the superpowers of the day, and they were constantly, they had constantly been at war with each other. So if we rewind just a little bit and just take stock at the start of the 
uh, 7th century, so around 602 AD. And this, if you think about it, is just before the prophet uh, receives his mission. So he, he received his first revelation on 610. So if we can just keep those dates in mind, if I refer to 602, um, there was an emperor, the Byzantine emperor of the time was called Emperor Maurice, and he was actually overthrown by one of his own legionaries, a centurion by the name of Phocas. Now, interestingly, Maurice was not popular with some of the policies that he was implementing. He was implementing a form of what we would call today austerity, mm-hmm. and he was telling his soldiers who were fighting on fronts um, to ca- kind of reduce their pay, and they slowly reduced their pay until the final string, which was, you will um, live off the land by yourself, you'll get nothing from the state, you live off the land. And that caused a great deal of discontent in some of the um, armies that were being, uh, or some of the fronts in the Caucasus. So um, that led to res- a, a revolution, and, and this, the centurion, later general, Focus, came, um, decided to try and overthrow the emperor. And he, he marched on Constantinople, which was the uh, which was the home of the Byzantine emperor. So this is an internal feud within the Byzantine emperor. He, he met very little resistance. So he marched on and he ultimately he um, generated some political instability, but he also overthrew the emperor and he did it in such a brutal manner. He rounded up the entire family and he had them publicly ex- executed, including the children. So a very brutal uh, individual, but he didn't meet much resistance on that way because the policies of this emperor weren't very popular at the time. But this was very much a case of it's better the devil you know, because Focus's rule then became even more brutal. He was even worse for it for his own people. He brutalized them. And there's a number of instances where he uh, demonstrated his brutality and his lack of um, uh, consideration to the people of the time. So this is all happening in the Byzantine Emperor, uh, Empire, which is weakening it at the time. A lot of internal combats and, um, uh, in, and internal uh, conflict. Um, so he... So this in itself created the means or the opportunity for another leader to decide there was another opportunity to overthrow this brutal regime. And that leader was a man by the name of Heraclius. And he was actually a a very, um, uh, he he was a believer. He was a believer in Orthodox Christianity. Mm. He was, uh, and he actually was very close to actually monotheism. He didn't really believe in the Trinity. So it's very interesting how his his mindset was. But anyway, that's an aside. He actually gained a lot of support because mm-hmm. he began to uh, move against the uh, the existing emperor. So um, he he ultimately he he moves against the um, against focus. This is all happening sort of in the in the at the same time as the Prophet of Islam begins to receive revelation. So in 610, the Prophet of Islam um, received his first revelation, and at Around about this time, the Byzantines and the Sassanids, they start engaging in war because the weakened Byzantine state sort of invites an opportunity for the Persians to attack. And eventually the the Sassanids actually get all the way to Constantinople and they besiege them. But uh, Heraclius, around about 610, so this is literally um, (laughs) at the time the Prophet of Islam is receiving his first uh, revelation, he's overthrowing focus, as I mentioned before, and then he gains a great deal of support. Uh, and following the following the siege of um, of Constantinople, Heraclius sort of counters that, and then he starts to wage a successful campaign uh, in the east. And that campaign actually ultimately 
now this is beyond a little bit further into the future, but um, in 628, that campaign ends up at, with him capturing the Persian capital. So flipping the narrative entirely over the period of around 26 years. Um, so this, I think, is an important just let's yeah. this is the context of, of that. And if you just recall, at the start of our program, we're talking around roughly 620 AD. So it's not quite reached its conclusion. Mm -hmm. But these are the historical facts that, that took place at the time of Islam's development. It it's an interesting um, point, isn't it, that, that you see this this shift taking place. How would you compare it if, for the benefit of our listeners in terms of modern day um, comparisons at all, just if you could? That's a difficult comparison because, first of all, they are, well, Byzantines are more religiously motivated, mm -hmm. whereas the uh, Sassanids, uh, I wouldn't really class them as super religious in in, mm. in those terms but they were um, you know that the wars were just for the real estate around mm -hmm. the world mm -hmm. you know the trade routes and the um, the Byzantines had actually suffered quite a lot even before because there were plagues mm -hmm. you know, the bubonic plagues had ravaged them and they were suffering uh, and they, they were finding it difficult to hold the territory and the uh, the Sassanids or Persians uh, took advantage and made inroads into where the, I mean you could say that it's like the US versus USSR for example could be a comparison but you know the US versus USSR are two opposing economic systems whereas in those days it was just a matter of you know who can get the most land and the most revenue out of its conquests right um, and that kind of system of uh, empire building continued even through the Islamic period as well, but, you know, with a, with a very different uh, flavor. And we'll probably come to that maybe in a, in a later series some point. Uh, how it impacted Arabia as such, you know, I, you know, these are Arab tribes who are kind of minuscule as compared to these massive powers. Mm. I mean, they're, they're, their war tactics are rudimentary if you compare them to what how... You know, the Constantinople, the largest metropolis, mm. the most well-defended city. Uh, we're talking about um, war machines and um, sieges and, you know, the whole supply chain that goes with these armies. And on the other hand, we have these tribes of mercenaries, basically, who are guarding the Arab borderlands on behalf of their kin who are living more inland or in the, in the desert. And so the Ghassanites, for example, are allied mostly, uh, you know, with whoever is winning at that mm -hmm. time, right? So they, 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 they pick and choose the victors. And because in Mecca, the, um, because they, they are linked with those lands because of the trade, you know, they yeah. frequent into Syria and Jerusalem and they're interested in who's winning. Um, uh, they are naturally inclined because of their idol-worshipping idol towards the Persians mm -hmm. because they see... The Byzantines, as uh, well, monotheistic as you can see there, so there were some flavors of monotheism still present in the Byzantine, like in the story of Heraclius. Uh, Heraclius. Um, and there were Unitarian Christians, well known that there were Unitarian Christians, um, more than people nowadays, historians, admit to believe that they, the Christianity, as it developed over time as a Trinitarian faith, was not that common. It was, uh, you know, there were a lot of other sects. But Byzantine rulers, because they were ruling and they were the richest and they had 
or the influence their their version of Christianity kind of lingered. Um, so at that time, the Quran reveals a prophecy to mm. the Prophet that the Romans will prevail in a matter of few years. Uh, and, uh, and that was became a mockery because at that time, you see, the Khusro's army were at the, the you know, 610 AD, were the doorstep. Uh, you know, if you come to the capital of the most uh, powerful empire and you are besieging it, it's almost game over. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that, in that backdrop, you see, this is this is a revelation, and then these amazing things happen, and Heraclius actually pushes them back, all the way to their own capital, mm-hmm. uh, in a matter of a few years. Yeah. But uh, you know, the interpretation of those few years were much contested by the Quraysh. They thought that a few mm-hmm. years within the Quran, the word is which is three to nine years, mm-hmm. and they said, "What?" Well, you said three, mm-hmm. but bidaisinin would mean three or six or nine years, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and within nine years, the tide was turned, yeah. and, and Romans are coming clearly victorious. Yeah, and it's just important just to bear in mind just how close they were to um, capitulating. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in fact, they lost their uh, the true cross, the holy cross in that. The, mm-hmm. This is the Byzantines. They lost that to the Persians, so a very important... Uh, right. Spiritual of su- spiritual significance, mm-hmm. monument or artifact for them was, stopped, was taken from them. So that was around six thirteen fourteen, and we think that this this verse that or this chapter that um, uh, that Lot of just mentioned that's probably re- revealed around six twenty twenty one in that in that order. Um, so th- it's not uh, you know things are not going the Byzantines way at this period of time. It's very difficult to predict that things will be t- overturned in that in that short space of time. And interestingly, uh, there are Jewish tribes in Medina who pay tribute to the Khusro. Mm-hmm. Um, the Persian uh, leader. The Persians. Mm-hmm. Sorry, um, Khusro is the title, right? So whoever the Persian leader, mm-hmm. uh, because of their anti, well, basically, you know, they would oppose Christians who have been persecuting them for centuries. And in Mecca, they are also aligned towards this Sassanid. So there is a whole uh, milieu of local politics which is also pitched against uh, uh, Muslims because, um, you know, if the Romans are losing, you know, that could, would have been seen as natural allies, as you see the Christian king in uh, Abyssinia mm-hmm. gave them refuge. So, uh, you know, people would have been thinking, you know, what if Romans win and Muslims ally with them and it's game over for us, right? They will be prevalent. But the history later on tells a totally different story. So was it more than just a prophecy then? Uh, I mean, you, uh, Sophia explains the, the geopolitical nature of what was going on. That you've explained that there was a prophecy that the tables would be turned. Uh, the Quraysh at that time kind of mocked the Muslims. But what was the impact of, of all of this on the Muslim community at that time? Was it was it that they that the prophecy that that was articulated at that time came true and therefore they were shown as truthful or or was what was the significance of this but the nature of the prophecies of this nature mm. uh, for the believers it would have been a heartening mm. outcome that you know whatever they saw the, or you know, clearly understood from the verses came true but for the non-believers it would have been you, you know, skepticism would have, they found other ways to be skeptical about yeah. this. Uh, up until they actually lost and a lot of them converted to Islam 
Only then they would have seen the truth. Mm. Like, they were the ones then being in the armies of the Muslims who were then going on and conquering Rome itself, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, um, that's the nature of the prophecies. All, all these, for example, or even miracles uh, that for believers, they, they bring a lot of, um, you know, good news, courage. And, uh, but for non-believers, their skepticism stays as it is. And uh, uh, I mean, that, that kind of goes, going back to the mirage in Israel and all the other events that we have discussed, like of splitting of the moon, etc., uh, you know, these are spiritual events in their true sense, and they are there for the Prophet and his followers to take strength from. Yeah, and I think there's an element to say that um, a different type of, you know, believers vary in their understanding and appreciation mm-hmm. of things, and different believers might have appreciated it in a different way. One thing that struck me, if I happen to, you know, experience that would be that you know the the prophet of islam to whom i'm an obedient follower of is stating that in a period of six to nine years something will happen and the believers will rejoice so he can see a future mm-hmm. that you know lasts at least six or nine years more that mm-hmm. will give them confidence that there there is a there's a plan there is a destination for us to arrive at mm-hmm. um so yes i think you know would there would i'd also take your point that you know the non-believers they'll just find other reasons to continue to disbelieve it mm-hmm. but it is a huge prophecy and i think with the only the great benefit is where we're sitting from today in the 21st century we can take a look at hindsight mm. and that to me strikes me as a very profound prophecy of islam uh, of the prophet of islam uh, that came true and you know history is, is testament to that mm-hmm. and also just going back to where the holy prophet peace be upon him was at that time his background his uh many many agnostics and so on say that why would a person actually come up with this mm. this uh, story that this is going to happen in three to, uh, three to nine years? What would have motivated an individual to just come out of the blue and say this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this 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 is this is a very important question, and it comes goes back straight to the the office of a prophet, right? Mm. That prophets come with glad tidings. Also prophecies. I mean, that the mm. name suggests that news of the of the future events um, and acceptance of prayers. You know, there there are many other criteria yeah. that we find from not only the life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, but also the previous prophets that, like Moses, when he crossed the the sea, or you know, he against all odds he saved his um, the, the people of Israel from slavery and um, uh, took them to the promised land. And all the other prophets, that Jesus surviving the crucifixion, these are all part of God's plan mm-hmm. to show the world that he stands with his prophets. Mm-hmm. And whatever comes from him through his prophets comes true, right? I mean, yeah. it's also truthfulness of God. Um, and on the other hand, we have soothsayers and you know, people who are uh, predicting things based on, um, you know, omens and mm-hmm. uh, um, um, and other, you know, signs. Uh, and here you have somebody who's categorically giving you uh, news of the future, which mm-hmm. comes true. Mm-hmm. So it is part of the the, the prophetic mission to to uh, uh, to you know, give the final argument, which is, you know, this is impossibilities, and I'm giving you that out of the, all these impossibilities, one thing will happen 
that you can never challenge, mm. and that was it. Mm. And, and there's an element of scope here as well. He's not prophesizing something small. This mm. is a major geopolitical mm. event that he is mm. prophesizing. I think that scope speaks to the scope of the mission of the Prophet mm -hmm. of Islam. It is no small mission. It is something that is going to impact the world. Mm. And I wonder if it's worth us just touching on, it's slightly later in the chronology of what we're discussing, but the incident of Soraka. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I just want to delve a little deeper into that point that you're making, is that this, the mission of the Holy Prophet, you know, at that time, we're just talking about Mecca, we're talking about Daif, we're talking about Yathrib, you know, all within 50 or so miles or 200 miles uh, radius altogether. Mm. And yet, there's this prophecy about a massive mm. event that's going to take place, what, Constantinople, mm. which is literally thousands... Yeah. miles away yeah indeed i mean this, again we labor the point but this the prophet is an unlettered man um supported by a meager group of uh, stragglers some influential people amongst him happens to have um you know some uh confidence of you know in, influential tribes people protecting his life up until this point um and someone who essentially is quite humble in, in the scheme of things, is predicting the end of an emperor. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a, an Im Im impressive prophecy to make. Yeah, yeah. And we should say that yeah. it wasn't something that he, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, just said. He was, we believe as Muslims, that God yeah. Almighty revealed to him that this was going to happen. Yeah, it was a revelation. Yeah, everything goes, goes back to the Quran, right? Yes. And these verses, um, I mean, with Suraka, uh, those were his own words, right? So to, just for people who don't know, there's an event that happens during the uh, migration to Medina with Suraka, a, um, somebody who's an expert, um, uh, what would you call tracker. it? A tracker. who was sent by Quraysh or hired by Quraysh mm. to find the, the Holy Prophet and his companion, Abu Bakr. Um, and he finds them. But at that time, his... Uh, horse actually or was it his camel or horse whatever he's riding uh, sinks in the sand three times uh, and uh, when he f actually the holy prophet then uh, when he encountered the holy prophet holy prophet uh, now at this time he knows that you know he's not meant to catch them and you know the, these portents all point towards i should go back because god um, uh, is making things happen that should not happen to some an expert like me. Um, and the Holy Prophet says, Raga, what will be your state when uh, the golden uh, bangles of uh, Khosrow are um, in your hands? And, uh, and Suraka is the remembers when uh, finally the Sassanid Empire falls and the bangles of Khosrow are presented to Umar, Razilan, who is the caliph. And he brings uh, Suraka, mm -hmm. saying, come. Uh, and in some narration, he says, wear these bangles. And Suraka said, these are made of gold. Cool, yeah. uh, and gold is forbidden uh, to men. And uh, Omar, uh, peace be upon him, actually insists that he must wear them to fulfill that prophecy, yes. even uh, for a few moments. Uh, and also with Medina, you know, we, we keep coming back to Medina, the Prophet peace be upon him, actually prophesied that Medina will become the city that will devour all the other cities. And that's another prophecy about Yasrib. Mm -hmm. if, if we can just stay with the Soraka one, mm -hmm. because that for me is another um, unbelievably 
uh, compelling uh, incident of the Prophet. So as you said, he's being pursued. This is the Prophet of Islam escaping for his life from Mecca and heading to Medina, taking the long way around. Mm-hmm. And an expert tracker whose single mission is to find him and track him down, does find him, does track him down. Some strange things happen to him where his horse falls over. He uses his divining instruments. They all give him evil omens. Um, and then at this point when the Prophet of Islam, perhaps any anyone else in the world would be in fear of their life, instead of begging for his life or trying to run away, he turns to face him and t- Gail tells him a prophecy mm-hmm. for something that won't happen for 15 years. Not only will you not capture me today, but you will become one of my followers. Yeah. Yeah. And in 15 years from now, you'll be wearing an emperor's jewellery. Yeah. And, Amazing. you know, it's just unbelievable yeah. stuff. Yeah. And, you but, know, the, these prophecies, I mean, we can go into the whole... Uh, could do many episodes of mm-hmm. these prophecies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so the, I was talking to Medina, that the migration to Medina and all the things that were happening uh, around that time, mm-hmm. uh, it's just part of its grand plan, God's mm-hmm. grand plan, that Muslims are going to rise from Medina mm-hmm. and they're going to uh, destroy or, or uh, not destroy, conquer. But, uh, conquer these two major world powers yeah. in the matter of two decades, if anything. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, Muslims who were early converts, many of them are actually alive to see the day. Happened. Yeah. Thank you, gentlemen. It's been a, a fascinating episode. As usual, Jazakallah. Thank you very much. May Allah bless you. Um, time has flown by, uh, as it does on these episodes. Um, so please uh, join us again next uh, time, where we'll continue the journey. Uh, the Holy Prophet as the greatest revolutionary We'll touch upon uh, Yathrebu, uh, the city, and the uh, massive uh, event of the migration of the Holy Prophet from Mecca to Medina next time. Peace be on you. Muhammad, one of the most revered personalities of this age. To many, he was the most influential man ever to have graced this earth. The final prophet of God, the perfect man who brought the most perfect religion, However, today we live in a world which has been divided by various interpretations of his life. A world which is perplexed by the behaviour